0: exclusive podcast from impact 89 fm
1: wdbm east lansing
2: the impact
1: you're listening to impact
3: exposure
4: exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today broadcasting from the campus of michigan state university this is
3: impact exposure Fact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, Muammar Gaddafi's security chief, is among several former Libyan officials who have arrived in the capital of Niger, according to the BBC. They say the man, Amansur Dao, entered the country on Sunday and traveled via the desert city of Agadez. Meanwhile, a convoy said to be carrying dozens of heavily armed Gaddafi loyalists, as well as gold and cash, has also crossed the border. Niger officials say Gaddafi is not believed to be traveling with it. The former Libyan leader has vowed to fight to the death, even though he has lost control of most of the country. And in national news, wildfires sweeping across drought-ridden Texas have destroyed more than 1,000 homes and forced thousands of evacuations in the last several days, according to Reuters. The worst of the fires, the Bastrop County complex fire located about 30 miles southeast of Austin, has destroyed up to 600 homes, the most of any single fire in Texas history. About 5,000 people have been evacuated in Bastrop County alone. And in Michigan news, a rally is scheduled tomorrow on the steps of the state capital protesting proposed changes to the state's medical marijuana law, according to the Associated Press. The Michigan Medical Marijuana Association president and other speakers during the rally in Lansing are expected to discuss the law and treatment of patients and caregivers that they have received from law enforcement. The event starts at noon. Michigan's appeals court has ruled some sales at dispensaries illegal. Changes proposed by some Michigan legislatures would require stricter doctor-patient relationships before a patient could get authorization to use the drug. And today on Exposure, we'll be talking about environmental issues in the state. But first, we'll be talking about health. In the studio is Professor Helen Veit, and she is here to talk about um, a presentation that she'll be giving tomorrow at noon at Fee Hall. And the presentation is called The Ethics of Aging in the Age of Youth. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So first off, what do you mean by the ethics of aging?
5: Well, what I'll be talking about tomorrow is that Attitudes towards aging and towards death changed about 100 years ago in the early 20th century, in large part because people were living longer. As fewer people were dying from epidemic diseases like typhoid fever or cholera, more people started dying from things like diabetes or heart disease. The difference was that with chronic diseases like those, people started to think there was something they could do about it. They could eat better or they could get more exercise or they could try to manage their stress. And so they started thinking about death and aging as things that if you had enough
3: willpower, you could prevent or delay. And and how relevant do you think of that still happening today? Well, I think those those Ideas
5: that aging is not just an inevitable process, but that it's a series of symptoms and that if you're savvy and well-educated and hardworking, you can address those symptoms one by one is totally still with us. It's in all of those advertisements for creams or lotions to get rid of wrinkles or for um, exercises that will keep a youthful figure. Um, it's ideas that if you lead a relatively stress-free life. You might live longer. All of these are the idea that there are things that you can do as an individual to delay aging. The problem, of course, is that even though, of course, we know some of those things do prevent chronic diseases, aging is inevitable for everybody. And as far as we know, death is too. And so by making it to some degree someone's fault as they get older or have these problems, uh, that raises ethical questions. Oh, and what do you mean by ethical questions well it it makes it for example soon after these changes happened um, in the early 20th century there were more and more legal there was there was more and more legal discrimination against the elderly um, often in the forms of um, companies or businesses literally having age cutoffs and saying once you reach a certain age we consider you unfit to work we will fire you Um, Or some companies had policies, like we will not hire any women over the age of 35, because everyone knows that after the age of 35 women start to break down. Other people fought those, and they said, that's not true. Some women way you know, in their 40s are, are still able and, and able to work, um, or men in their 50s are occasionally so hardy that they're still hard workers and great business people. It's all about their physical shape. Of course, that was changing the, the letter of that discrimination, if not the spirit of it. They were still saying there should be some cutoff after which um, it, it's okay to fire someone based on their physical health. And, and how would you
3: relate to maybe to the debate today as far as um, people being discriminated from predisposed conditions, let's say, when it, when it comes to health care?
5: Yeah, I mean, that's to some degree is, sim- is similar. I mean, a lot of the debates back then also also revolved around health care and health insurance. In fact, the big push towards, um, in some ways, medicalizing aging came from health insurance companies who wanted better ways to evaluate their subscribers. In fact, medical um, insurance companies started saying to some subscribers, we will give you a free checkup every year. Um, We'll give you a checkup and you can go to a doctor and you'll get evaluated. The insurance companies wouldn't get the evaluation. So that ethically, I think, was, was very sound. But what they hoped would happen is that then patients would get advice from the doctors on, way that they, on ways that they could stay healthy. Thus, they would live longer, keep paying insurance premiums longer. Those sorts of efforts are also going on today. There are some insurance companies that are giving incentives to clients if they, for example, visit health clubs more regularly, if they stop smoking. At the same time, they're penalizing people who don't do those things. And that's, um, while it makes sense from a business point of view, is, is also interesting. Do you, can you penalize someone or prevent them from having insurance if they're a smoker.
3: And so you're talking about how I mean your your presentation tomorrow is about the rising life expectancy the rising life expectancy in the early 20th century. Um, So so I'm curious, when when people in the early 20th century were saying, we can have control over how long we live, and that's, you know, in that, wow, we can change our life by saying, by having better diets and and more exercise, Um, how did that affect uh, the life expectancy?
5: Well, a lot of changes were happening. In part, people were living longer. Fewer infants were dying. Infant mortality was declining. But people were living longer in general. They were also surviving middle age in much greater numbers. The life expectancy increased from 50 years of age in 1900 to almost 60 in 1930. To us, that's still low. People today have a life expectancy roughly around 80. To them, it seemed miraculous. In fact, it prompted all of these questions about how long is the human lifespan? Not just life expectancy, how long can we expect to live? But if, in an ideal environment, we take great care of ourselves and we do everything right, could we live to 90 or 100 or 200? Some people, and very serious people, Nobel Prize-winning scientists in some cases, seriously proposed that perhaps the human lifespan was really a 1,000, maybe longer, and we just had always been not taking good care of our bodies. And so people started to to really... What today seem like ludicrous suggestions, they just didn't know. Another thing to keep in mind is that in 1910, for example age records for someone who was 100, year old, 100 years old were really hard to come by. That person would have been born in 1810 or maybe earlier, where there weren't official government documents in most cases. So sometimes people said, well, how, how do we know? Maybe these people lived longer, or maybe they're lying. Maybe no one has ever lived to be 100 before. People seriously had these conversations then.
3: So you're saying that, you know, in in the 30s or so, so we have eight, an 80-year span in which the life expectancy jumped 30 years mm-hmm. between, you know, the, being 50 years old to 80 years old, life expectancy. So where do you see the life expectancy, you know, another 80 years from now? (laughs) Do you think it's going to jump another 30 years?
5: Well, the sobering truth is that right now, for the first time in history, American children are predicted to have shorter life expectancies than their parents, in large part because of obesity and the diseases that are correlated with obesity. This is not an irreversible trend. But right now, the predictions are that children being born now will have lower life expectancies. This is not at all inevitable, and that's just for American children. But uh, scientists generally agree that the human lifespan is somewhere around 100 or 120 years, somewhere in that range, I- in the best possible circumstances. We just don't know of people really living much past that. So I don't think, I don't think that the human lifespan is, is truly elastic. And thus, perhaps, if we really take great care of ourselves, we can be regularly living to 110, 120, maybe. Much past that, I I don't think it's going to happen. And and what do you think is the key to living to 110, <laughs> 120? <laughs> um, I I don't know. Certainly, diet has a lot to do with it. I mean, a lot of the things they talked to it di- talked about a hundred years ago, diet, fitness, and stress levels, do seem correlated. But so do things like you know
3: wearing your seatbelt, not smoking. There are a host of factors. So I'm curious. You know, back in in the 30s, or so the life expectancy was 50 now it's 80 and now you're talking about well now's the first time that 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 children are now may have shorter lifespans than their parents so when do you think was the most health the healthiest decade for people
5: (laughs) that's a good question it's very hard to say i i think that's immensely complicated for example even if um you know someone born in the 60s or 70s maybe they had you know excellent an excellent diet and, you know, very little chance of dying from an epidemic disease, they still might have been exposed to a lot of cigarette smoke, for example. Or someone born in the 80s might have had less cigarette smoke, but perhaps more
3: um, pesticides in their food. It's very hard to say, I, I think. All right. Well, in the studio is Professor Helen Veit. She is giving a presentation tomorrow at noon at Fee Hall. And her presentation is called The Ethics of Aging in the Age of Youth. Professor Helen Veit, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Emily
5: you're listening to
3: impact Exposure.
1: i'm out of here Th- thanks
4: again man it was good wait time. you
6: were uh you were hitting it pretty hard tonight are, are you good to drive heck yeah
4: i am amazing at driving
6: yeah man you sure i mean i can call a cab or we fine. can uh, we can get somebody to
4: take you home yeah, you know?
6: yeah don't worry i'm good okay uh hey text me when you get back okay
1: stop right there This is stupid. He's drunk. Friends don't let friends drink and drive. Ever.
4: A message from 88.9 The Impact.
1: For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to The Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
5: Friday nights from 8 until 10 p.m., The Impact Flashback is your retro music alternative, playing your old favorites from
3: the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Only on
4: Impact primetime. Primetime. In a world where radio was repetitive and mundane. In a time when FM is plagued by the same 15 songs, an army of new songs are called to battle, and only the strongest survive. Every Sunday night from 8 till 10, sit or spin, only on Impact 89FM. Now, back to
1: Impact
3: Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. This month, the Office Office of Campus Sustainability is leading the Clean Commute Challenge. In the studio is a panel to talk about how you can help be an environmental steward in this community. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. So first off, can you go around and introduce yourself and where you are from? Okay. I'm Tim
4: Potter from MSU Bikes.
3: I'm Kathleen Edgerly with the CATA Clean Commute
1: Options Program. And
7: I'm Lauren Olson with the Office of
1: Campus Sustainability.
3: So first off, what is the Clean Commute Challenge?
1: The Clean Commute Challenge is a week-long challenge, um, particularly with a focus with college campuses across the state of Michigan, all competing against each other to log the most clean commute trips. And that can be anything from biking, walking, taking the bus, carpooling, vanpooling, anything other than driving alone.
3: So I understand that the Clean Commute campaign was in response to the Eaton, Clinton, and Ingham counties falling below EPA's air quality standards in 2004. That is correct. Um, Has the air quality improved since then? Um, They've just been changing
1: the standards. So we're at a, I guess, maintenance level. So it hasn't really improved and hasn't really gotten worse. So we're just maintaining... Where we're at.
3: Have you seen a difference in people's habits as far as how they commute in mm-hmm. the community?
1: Yep, we're seeing a lot more people choosing to leave their own personal vehicles at home and choose a different way to get around, which is great. A definitely increase in the number of people who use our program and services. Um, and it can be a variety of factors just the awareness about the environment, mental factors are leading to the air quality, or as well as people just wanting to save money.
3: And I understand that Michigan took or um, MSU took second place last year in the Campus Challenge, um, setting a Michigan record for the highest number of college campus commutes. Mm-hmm. That is correct. So how so is this? Is this many universities in Michigan also participate in this event at this time?
1: We get um, anywhere from six to eight big universities participating in conjunction with a uh, Cooley Law School and like our Lansing Community College just down the road.
3: All right. And I know tomorrow, from noon to one, there will be a bicycle commuting seminar at the International Center. Um, And Tim Potter from MSU Bikes is here. So what are some things that people can learn at that event?
4: Well, you know, like what uh, types of clothing and other accessories make it easier for for someone to start commuting. And uh, uh, for uh, 20-some years, I was, say, using a backpack, and that just tends to make you really sweaty, and it's just a simple thing to to make a change in how you carry your stuff to, you know, put a basket on your bike and, or a pannier or something, you know, little tips like that that'll, uh, what, what sort of clothing to wear to make it more comfortable and to deal with different types of weather. Um, those are a couple examples.
3: And I'm curious, has the biking community on campus grown over the past, let's say, five years or so?
4: Definitely. Yeah, we've uh, we've been seeing the, the, the hard numbers uh, we get are primarily from the, uh, police department on bike registration numbers, and they've been uh, almost doubling every year um, in the past, uh, well, since '03. Um, they they did make the registration uh, free of charge around that time, and so that obviously also made a difference. I think in how many people were registering their bikes. But we're we're looking at a bike population now of maybe between 15 and 20,000 bikes.
3: And why do you think campus? that population may have grown?
4: Well, the gas prices certainly have a big effect on that. Um, and just programs like the Clean Commute Challenge and other programs that uh, we've been doing in the community to encourage it. And uh, certainly MSU Bikes is what we'd like to think that we've been uh, helping more people ride their bikes on campus instead of you know, get a flat tire and just abandon the bike. So.
3: And what are some safety tips that most bikers and drivers may not know?
4: Well, a uh, big thing is, is that about 90% of the bicycle accidents with injuries happen where bicycles intersect at crosswalks and um, or from riding on sidewalks. And so, uh, we try to I try to encourage bicyclists who come into my shop that have just been in an accident to to know that it's safe to ride in the road or safer to ride in the road, with or without the bike lanes. So that's that's kind of a big challenge because a lot of people are used to riding on the sidewalks where they come from subdivisions and other less populated areas um but yeah that's that's one of the big ones is that uh, it's just a lot safer to actually ride in the road of course you want to be visible and wear bright clothing and use lights and things like that so we'll talk a lot about that tomorrow
3: so i know i i went to chicago this past summer and, and um went biking about maybe like a 20 mile route or so um and i noticed that it's that there were all these signs saying you cannot ride on the sidewalks um, and they would fine you if if you didn't. Um, so is it true that that sometimes riding on sidewalks is illegal, and is that the case in East Lansing as well?
4: Uh, that is the case in on campus as well as um, East Lansing, I think especially. I believe they enforce it more so in the business district where there's a lot of shoppers and doors that open and stuff and where it's a lot narrower. Uh, I don't know that there's much enforcement outside of the business district that I've heard of. On campus, um, I think the only time that there might be some enforcement is if at the site of an accident where there's some some case for the police to be there on the site. Um, there was a kind of a well-known case last year in East Lansing where a, a girl was riding her bike across a crosswalk and got hit, and she ended up with a ticket because she was riding her bike where she wasn't supposed to be. That got kind of a bit of press. So, um, but yeah, the, uh, enforcement is a really big key thing and we're we're trying to encourage more of that on campus to just uh, help discourage more cyclists or, or encourage them to ride in the in the roadways.
3: And and have biking accidents gone down since more bike lanes have been inso- installed.
4: They were trending down really nicely uh, until we had kind of a, a spike last fall for for a time. So we're hoping to see that trend of going down uh, resume. We're not really sure what caused the bit of a spike last a year ago but hoping that we're we're going to have a safer fall with uh, some campaigns that we're we're looking to um, also try to and we've done quite a bit of uh, uh, education through the academic orientation program this summer through AOP and getting the word out a lot more in terms of educating and so we're hoping that some of those things might prove effective in this coming year.
3: So in the studio, I'm talking to a, um, a panel here, and, and we're talking about the Clean Commute Challenge, which is happening uh, September 19th through the 23rd. So I have a question for, for Lauren Olson and Kathleen Edgerly, who are here in the studio. Um, I'm curious, how would you rank either MSU and, in I guess in your case, Kathleen, the, the local, you know, the greater Lansing community as far as, you know when you compare us to other cities in, in in Michigan and even in the nation where do we where do we compare as far as how people utilize clean commuting? I think we have a
7: difficult challenge here at MSU compared to maybe other universities which find themselves in a major city, and that we have re- relatively ample parking um, and we are classified as a rural university. So we do have that challenge against us. But at the same time, um, we have a lot of great opportunities in terms of a great bus system through CATA, a lot of van pooling options, bicycling, walking. um, And we also have a great um, community surrounding that. So um, we have a lot of opportunities also to embrace these other modes of transportation besides driving by ourselves. Mm
1: -hmm. And really, in comparison to the other cities around Michigan, with MSU and the Greater Lansing region, We rank as one of the highest in terms of the people who utilize the different clean commute options. So we're happy to see that trend.
3: And and while this event is only going on between September 19th and 23rd, what can people do? Are there other resources people can go to to help them become cleaner commuters? Mm -hmm. We have a variety of
1: resources available. A lot of the information is available on our website at cleancommute.org. It's all one word. So they can definitely... um, go to the website for some more information and to find out how they can be entered to participate in the challenge and get their prizes and everything. Um, And then there's also a lot of helpful links on the website as well to connect them if they're interested in trying a different mold than they might currently use to see what options are available to them.
3: Well, in the studio is Lauren Olson, Kathleen Edgerly, and Tim Potter, and they're here to talk about the Clean Commute Challenge that happens September 19th through 23rd. And, Lauren Olson, is there anywhere else where people can go for more information? definitely. Um, We have a great website at bspartangreen.msu.edu and on that website
7: under the happenings link you can find the links to our upcoming events we have surrounding this. Um, So tomorrow we have a bicycle commuting seminar going on from noon to one um, at the International Center in the Spartan Room B. And then the following week on Wednesday, September 14th, um, Kathleen will be leading a seminar about Mishivan van pooling, capital area transportation options including um, the ride share matching that her office provides um, also busing and other options and that will be when, again Wednesday, September 14th from noon to 1 at the International Center and then finally, um, Kathleen and I um, will be outside the International Center during the Clean Commute Challenge Week on Tuesday, September 20th, um, talking with students, faculty, and staff, and anyone who stops by outside the International Center about the Clean Commute Challenge.
3: All right, well, thank you everyone for joining us tonight. And again, the Clean Commute Challenge is September 19th through the 23rd. Thank you so much for joining us tonight.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.
5: You're listening to
1: Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
5: Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues. Your source for great blues music, news, and concert
2: information. Only on Impact Time.
3: Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill, and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza, and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Art Council.
5: Now, back to
3: Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Farmers' markets have been popping up across the state, but have you ever heard of a virtual farmers' market? To talk about one of the first online farmers' markets in the country is Jerry Adams of FarmLink. And FarmLink is located right here in Michigan in Grand Rapids. Welcome to the show, Jerry.
2: Hey, thanks very much for having me.
3: So, first off, tell me about FarmLink and how it works.
2: Link uh, the gist of it is that the uh, what I try to do is connect uh, small uh, scale farms, family farms with uh, businesses, restaurants, uh, corporations, hospitals, that kind of thing. So the farmers post their product uh, on our website, and the chefs uh, go and uh... look at what's available from friday morning until monday afternoon they place their orders and then wednesday afternoon at one o'clock all the farmers bring the product that's uh, been ordered in and the chefs come in and we kind of have a little uh... a food fest and uh, there's an exchange that takes place uh... the uh... chefs write checks to farmlink and then i in turn uh, write a check back to the uh... farmers so it's a way for small scale farmers to aggregate their product uh, so they've got enough of a volume where they could uh, potentially supply bigger institutions as opposed to just kind of a one-to-one relationship with a restaurant. Uh, it kind of simplifies that whole process.
3: And how long has FarmLink been around for? Uh,
2: we started FarmLink about six months ago. I think it was March or April this year uh, when we went live. Uh, we we did a little bit before the kind of hot growing season uh, because we wanted to kind of get our feet wet and, and uh, kind of roll it out slowly. Uh, now we've got uh, we've got about ten uh, restaurants uh, buying hospitals those kinds of things and probably twelve to fifteen uh, farms uh, that are supplying us. But it grows weekly, so uh, uh, it's kind of. Um, I, st- I started a co-op about five years ago on the same model, so. Uh, I, I I know how the trajectory is. Obviously, we've got to change the minds of a lot of chefs. Uh, there's another crowd of chefs that were already in the local and that are getting it local. Um, but this is a, kind of a transitory process where it makes it easier for the farmer where they can bring in and, and supply multiple uh, restaurants at the same place at one drop-off as opposed to going to multiple drop-offs. So it's a it's a little bit different model for both the chefs as well as the farmers um, to kind of work in this way. but. But uh, once, once they join, uh, I've got them.
3: And, and I know this has only been going on for a few months, but how many farmers uh, do you work with, and where are those farmers from?
2: focus uh, kind of a radius around Grand Rapids. Now, a lot of the farmers that I work with, I worked with uh, when I started the co-op. Maybe I should give a little background on that. I started uh, West Michigan Co-op, which, which is essentially the same thing as FarmLink, except that its target audience was households. Uh, my initial interest was connecting small-scale farmers to households in a, in a model that went beyond the traditional farmer's market model, uh, You know, which is more seasonally controlled. Uh, a lot of product comes out of Michigan this year-round beyond just vegetables and fruits, uh, and I wanted to kind of take that and spin it to make it easier for the farmer to work with multiple uh, sales and uh, to give people in households a way of getting access to uh, uh, locally grown, sustainably grown uh, product. From uh, the, the co-op, uh, that had a specific radius around Grand Rapids. Uh, we wanted to specifically focus it, keep, it in the lo- keep money in the local economy, kind of returning it back on itself. Uh, FarmLink, uh, because I'm, I'm concerned with volume issues, uh, will tend to go a little bit further afoot, but uh, we haven't needed to yet. Uh, but part of my model with that is that I hope that I have to uh, go a little bit beyond the radius that, uh, that the co-op uh, sustained.
3: And what would you say are the biggest struggles local farmers and producers face here in Michigan?
2: the weather. Uh, this year was a great example of that. Uh it, it was kind of a late season. Um but beyond that sales, you know, if you if if you're large enough to sell to uh a Meyer or a Spartan, those kinds of things, you're not going to get the return on your product that you would if you go to a farmer's market. However, and everybody loves farmers markets and I, I'm a big farmers market advocate. Um, however you know the potential exists for a farmer to wake up at four pack up everything they've harvested the day before, load it up, take it to the farmers market, set up their stand, and it starts raining at eight o'clock. You know, so if it's a beautiful day, they could have great sales, if it rains, they have no sales, and they just don't know what they're gonna hit when they get there. um, With, Farmlink and and West Michigan Co-op before that uh they they're aware of their sales before they have to deliver. In the case of the co-op that's a monthly cycle so they know about a week ahead of time uh what they need at the pickup. Uh with Farmlink that's a weekly schedule um, and they know 2 days before uh so they know already you know today's Tuesday so yesterday afternoon they knew what uh, they were responsible to show up with tomorrow at the pickup as well as how much money they had already made.
3: So I know that FarmLink is one of the first online farmers markets in the country. Are there any other online farmers markets in, in Michigan? And what are some of the what were some of the other first online farmers markets in the nation?
2: Yeah, the first one, or the one that uh, when I started researching this, because this goes back seven, eight years when we uh, first started. Um, there was a guy in Oklahoma. He had an operation where he would cull product from throughout the state. So he had like regional. Uh, you know places where they brought things together and then they actually trucked it into Oklahoma City and he had a huge group of volunteers that would come in and and reassign it and then they would disperse it back out through these regional distribution centers and that was way too complicated for me i was more interested Beyond the whole uh, ease of use of the Internet, I was more interested in the relationship between farmer and, and the people consuming the product with FarmLink chefs, uh, with the co-op households. So um, what I try to do is, is, yeah, I mean, the online part's great. That's, that's the wrench, you know, for me. But the true gist of what I'm trying to accomplish is when everybody comes together, because then there's information shared, the relationship's built, uh, the chefs can actually impact the kind of product that the, that the farmer's growing. Uh, these kinds of things. I might have gotten a little off track there, did I? I
3: can't. <laughs> no, you're perfectly fine.
2: Uh, we started out in Oklahoma, that's right. So I researched that. That was a little bit too complicated for me. So we, we simplified it down to focusing on that kind of getting together point, that relationship point. I guess that that was my destination. Um now, in Michigan, what we've done with uh, when we ran the co op and now with Farmlink, we've given our software away. So uh, there is uh, an online farmers market in uh, Ann Arbor that uses it, South Bend, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. So we've. Um We've been proponents. We figured if we were a not-for-profit and we were doing this for the greater good, why not give the software away as well to uh, kind of perpetuate the model? So uh, we've we've uh, we've always had that as kind of our, our back cause of uh, trying to help out other people do the same thing.
3: So you you ha- in order for people to participate in FoodLink, they need um, rather than just going online and signing up, they need software in order to participate.
2: No, no. It's just a website, um, so you join uh, online. And uh, FarmLink, there's no uh, membership fee. It's it's almost like a, an online store, but uh, the transactions don't take place online uh, because we make adjustments. If if a farmer has a product that comes in, they've got a surplus, they're trying to get rid of something um, because it's fresh, it's at its peak. They'll bring in extras, and the chefs will be there, and oh yeah, I'll take 10 pounds of that or whatever, um, and then we'll make adjustments to the uh, invoices that the uh, chefs placed online. So uh it's kind of a fluid dynamic. We try to keep it as simple as possible, uh and almost generic, you know. It's it's kind of a place your product uh and then have the chefs go in and place what they want, and then we come together and, and make that exchange.
3: Well, on the phone is Jerry Adams. He is with FarmLink. It is one of the first online farmers markets in the country and is located right in Grand Rapids, Michigan. For more information, you can go to wmfarmlink.com. Jerry Adams, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
2: Well Thanks for having me.
5: You're listening to
1: Impact Exposure.
3: You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone is Patty Burkholz. She is the director of the Office of the Great Lakes, and she's here to talk about the future of the Great Lakes and their impact on Michigan. Welcome to the show, Patty Burkholz. Thank you. So this year you were, or I guess last year, you were... um, you were sworn in under the Snyder administration uh, to be the director of the Office of the Great Lakes. Um, What do you hope to accomplish under his administration?
6: Well, first of all, um, we're dealing with a lot of Great Lakes issues this year in Michigan that I I think are very important to all of us, and the governor has made it a strong priority. In his State of the State, Governor Snyder talked about the natural resources of Michigan being one of the economic engines of our state going forward. And so we have to not only balance the economy and the needs of the users of Michigan, but also the, the integrity of our natural resources and how we use them. And they are meant to be used, but used wisely. And how we use them and, and, res- and, and um, help access them in our state going forward.
3: So you say we're, we're facing some issues with the, with the Great Lakes right now. I know last week on, on this show we, we talked with someone about um, the threat of Asian carp, but what are some other
6: issues that the Great Lakes um, may be facing right now? Well, there, the Asian carp, which is an invasive species, is a huge issue for our state and probably the most threatening of the invasives right now, but there are 186 invasives. So we have other invasive fish, although certainly not as voracious as the Asian carp. We have invasive plants, and we even have some invasive animals in our state. So all of those have, have, um, require our constant vigilance as well as planning and resources to either um, contain them going forward. Many cases we're trying to prevent their entryway into Michigan, like the Asian carp, and then in some cases, we, we have um, issues dealing with them as far as their presence is here, but we don't want them to multiply and expand.
3: Can you talk a little bit about the Great Lakes Compact
6: and why it's important
3: for Michigan? Well,
6: the Great Lakes Compact is essential to our state as as we move forward because the economy begins to grow again, and it is growing and will, I hope, continue to grow. Um, There will be more and more interest in tapping into our Great Lakes waters, not only here in Michigan but also in all the other states and the two Canadian provinces. So that's very important that with the the adoption of the compact now, all the states have adopted it as well as the two Canadian provinces, and it's been ratified by Congress, which gives it a treaty-like status going forward. And we need to be very cognizant of the compact and adhere to the compact because it allows us to use our waters and use them wisely, given standards that everybody has adopted, and then to be able to help grow our economy but make sure that that natural resource is here for our future use, for our children and our grandchildren and all those who come after us. So I know
3: that the Great Lakes Compact is about kind of preserving and protecting the Great Lakes, but does it does the Great Lakes Compact limit certain states to be able to use the water, or you know how is it that it's protecting the Great Lakes?
6: Well, it gives us all equal limitations. So under the Great Lakes Compact, we all have the same limitations. The one of the biggest of which is that the um, water that's used in the basin and taken from the basin has to remain in the basin. So. That means that basically if you use it here in Michigan, you can can use it and use it wisely, but it better be returned to the basin, Um, whether you're a farmer that's irrigating or whether you're a a community that's using the water for drinking water, for purification, for drinking water, um, whether you're a small um, farm or or just a residential used. You know, you have to return it to the basin. One of the first requests for a diversion, quote unquote, on the Great Lakes, under the Great Lakes Compact, is going to come soon from Wisconsin because it's coming from the city of Waukesha, which is on the Great Divide. And part of their return flow as they initially proposed, and there's now a second proposal because they withdrew their first proposal and they are going to be sending us a second proposal, would not have all the water being returned to the basin. It would go over the Great Divide and head west. So that will be one of the biggest issues facing our new Great Lakes governors. We have six new governors out of eight, two returning governors. And the Waukesha request will be a template going forward because it's going to be the first request for the Great Lakes governors under the compact. So, just
3: one more clarification. So, basically, the only only states that kind of lie in you know the Great Lakes basin have access to that water because. You know, it has to be returned to the Great Lakes Basin. So, you know, you can't. Exactly. Like, let's say states like Nevada that are having a hard time trying to try to um, get access to water and are kind of drying up right now, they won't ever have access to the Great Lakes water. You know, for for their for their use.
6: No, it would be against the rules of the compact, which, as I noted earlier, is not has not only been adopted by all the states but has been adopted by Congress. So it gives it a treaty level status. The only way that anyone could ever take water from within the basin, anywhere within the eight states or the two provinces, would have to happen um, in, in case of a national or international catastrophe or emergency. And it has to rise, first of all, it has to rise to that level, and secondly, it would have to be concurred in by all the governors of the eight states. How
3: would the Great Lakes be affected if more states had access to to its um, water?
6: Well, many scientists say that if if other states outside the basin had access to our water and were not returning it, you know they could literally take all our water or deplete it so far below its normal average return rate that we would not be successful using our water for even drinking water, let alone for irrigating our farms, for processing and manufacturing. A lot of manufacturers in Michigan use large amounts of water over an extended period of time, but most of the water that they use is cleaned up and then returned to the basin. So
3: you once said that, that each year water rises in its value and importance. Talk a little bit
6: about that. Well, because there are more and more arid countries as well as arid states in the United States, more and more people value water more. The the importance of it goes up because you can live without a lot of things, but you can't live without water. And so water's value increases as there are more arid spots in the world and in our nation and we know, we've heard from the Western states. I mean, I've talked to many legislators in my career in the legislature prior to this from the arid states, and they all say, well, we're going to get your water someday, or we want your water, or we covet your water. Um, I've had very um, strong discussions with some of those legislators from other states, and at the time we were in in the business of working on the compact, we were working on the development of the Great Lakes Compact, and then during part of that time getting it adopted by all the states. So, you know, I told them, we're, we're going to set this in a treaty. Um, we're going to document, we're going to finish the document, and then it's going to be certified by Congress. Therefore, you will not be able to get our water.
3: So you're talking about these arid states. Do they have any backup plan for when their water resources, you know, may dry up?
6: Um, in talking to most of them, their only backup plan is hoping and praying for more rain. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, that's why water is increasing in importance and increasing in its value over the years, um, particularly as people develop more and more land that's in an arid area of the country. Um, they need water to exist, and obviously, you know, it's, it's going to be more and more difficult, and water is going to increase in value.
3: So speaking of, of, of water, you're also, um, as a part of being the director of the Office of the Great Lakes, you're also involved with offshore wind farms. Can you talk a little bit about what's been happening
6: in Michigan as far as offshore wind? Well, there are, there are a significant number of new manufacturers or manufacturers who've been here several years who are looking at offshore wind, some of whom have already um, started manufacturing wind components and are shipping the components elsewhere in the nation or in some cases elsewhere in the world, but they would like to be able to have a market here in Michigan. Um, we have a GLOW Council report, a Great Lakes Offshore Wind Council report that says there are areas. And it's certainly not all up and down all the shorelines, um, but that it says there are areas that are good for wind, others that are not so good. Uh, so you can't put them everywhere even if you wanted to uh, because there are areas where the, the the science does not support putting up windmills or wind turbines, large wind turbines. The uh, manufacturing companies that are working on these Ideas now, many of them are gaining in strength. The the um, the new processes are finding are beginning to show that there they can get more wind um, out of bigger turbines further out in the lake, not necessarily right on the lake or on the shoreline of the lake. There are also areas where you would never want to put a wind turbine because there just is not. The wind just does not support it, and that's both on land and and out in the water. So I think you're going to see more talk about it going forward. There's also a huge issue of the cost of fuel today and where we get our fuel from and how many um, young men and women who are serving in our, in our Air Force and our armed forces overseas who are sometimes not coming back and, in in the condition they left in. And and because of the the cost of getting the fuel to the front, and often that's what our wars are about or our skirmishes overseas. So I think we have to look as a country whether we want to be more self-sustaining and less dependent on foreign oil, which we know often has a huge cost to it, and some of those costs end up with our armed service members coming back. And not whole parts. Well, on the phone is
3: the director of the Office of the Great Lakes, it's Patty Burkholz. Patty, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank
6: you.
5: You're listening to Impact
1: Impact Exposure.
3: Michigan storytelling segment in the studio is Steve Amick. He is a Michigan author based in Ann Arbor and he is also the author of The Lake, The River and The Other Lake. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
3: So talk a little bit about this book, The Lake, The River and The Other Lake.
0: Well, um, the the large part of this book came to me um, very quickly in 10 days um, when I was alone in our family cottage and I decided to write 20 pages a day on a uh, made-up town, and with multiple characters, and that's what I did. And at the end, I was almost uh, dead from exhaustion, but I had 200 pages of a of a novel. And that was about 10 years ago. Um, it came out in 2005.
3: And and I notice the shirt that you're wearing right now says "Great Lakes, no salt, dot dot dot, no sharks." Uh, how often do you write about Michigan in your work?
0: Uh, I actually, um, it, it kind of. I came back to it in my in my work uh, about when I came back to Michigan itself um, in my in my mid 30s. I, I came back to Michigan. And prior to that, as a as a younger writer, I kind of eschewed Michigan as a subject. And I, I thought it was very common and every pedestrian, everybody would. Everybody had seen anything about, everything about Michigan before, and I had a very strange idea about it. And it's funny, because when, when I started writing and allowing Michigan to be the setting in short stories, I, I, I think they became more real for me, the details and everything. And uh, I, I ended up selling more short stories. They've, they were better, I think, because I was writing about something I really knew. And then later, when this book came out in, in New York, a lot of the early reaction was, wow, this place is so exotic, so it's now very much a part of what, where I get my muse from.
3: And where does where does um, the lake, the river, and the other lake take place?
0: It takes place roughly in the northwest part of, of Michigan. If you really do the triangulation of certain elements of the story, you realize it's kind of replaced Manistee. The reason for that is that there are certain things that happen down in Detroit, and it wouldn't make sense for one of the characters to to go into Canada that way if it was any higher but it's it's not Manistee I'm not that familiar with Manistee it's 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 not one problem or interesting kind of hiccup I've had since this book came out is that so many people think that it's secretly about one specific town and it honestly isn't and I get I've read in towns where people are convinced that it's their town and I've never been there before so it's just an amount it's about the idea it's really about the idea of up north, really.
3: And I also understand not only are you an author, but you're also a visual artist and a musician, and you've, you've actually done drawings of this imaginary town that you have in this book, The Lake, the River, and the Other Lake, and you've, you've um, come up with songs about it that are based on this book as well?
0: Yeah, well, the songs were kind of based, again, on that idea of, of, of Michigan, and then they happened to work for this. A, a friend of mine now who was always a musical hero, uh, Dick Siegel, is actually in the book, but the character that hires him to play at his Sumac Lemonade promotional party wouldn't have bothered learning his name. So um, he, 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 um, he plays what his, his kind of well-known song in Michigan, uh, When the Sumac is on Fire. So we used uh, Dick's song and a number of my friend's songs to help promote the book on, online and things like that. The the drawing came about sort of accidentally. My editor wanted to get a better sense of the town, and I started drawing it. And sort of as a joke, it got bigger and more accurate. And I did use elements of maps that I knew of, of other towns just to kind of help fill it out Um and that led to the confusion that it was really based on a couple places. It wasn't meant to be the cover of the hard, that was such a surprise to myself and the editor, but the the graphic designer walked in to her office and found it and said, what is this? And we were surprised they could even reduce it enough to have it legible on, as a cover, so that was an exciting thing to be illustrating in my first novel.
3: So without further ado, would you be able to do a reading from uh, The Lake, The River, and The Other Lake?
0: Yes, uh, the book is about many characters, but Probably the most popular among readers is Roger Drinkwater, and he is an Ojibwe, but he's also one-eighth Polish, and he's he's an ex-Navy SEAL. This was back before that was so popular. There was a heavenly time, a sliver-thin window of peace that Roger Drinkwater cherished every year on many those early days when the water warmed, just enough for him to bear, but all others steered clear, and he could swim in peace and hear nothing but the water and his breath and the birds and the distant road, the way it had once been on this lake. It was a time before jet skis, before the idiot boys on their idiot toys, as he thought of them, and the little sing-song chant that drummed in his head the rest of each summer. One misty pre-dawn in late May, he got his first indication that the lake was now warm enough for at least a few intrepid others. Kids, of course, tended to brave the waters sooner than their finicky parents, and the evidence he found was something that obviously came from a child. It was floating, half-submerged, at the end of his dock, and he bumped his head against it on the return lap of his morning swim. An underwater toy in the shape of a flattened megaphone, purple plastic with a green mouthpiece— if it hadn't had a brand name, Sub Speaker, stamped on the side, he might not have known what it was for. He stood there in the water, examining it, disgusted. Plastic toys lost in the lake were essentially just pollution. Still, he wondered how well it worked. Glancing around first to make sure he was alone, he knelt to the waterline and put the mouthpiece to his lips. What came out was Chief Joseph Wonsong's famous words to Congress, Niman gaji binadkem gajik. That means roughly you have all been a great disappointment. The water was so still, the sound waves would carry as if across a drumhead. It's funnier, he decided, if no one can see me. And so he dropped lower in the water, the toy just nosing above the waterline, and he repeated the phrase, making it more guttural and ominous and spooky. He imagined some dumb cluck on the other side, those rich weekend warriors with the matching hot pink jet skis and that pontoon boat, looking out and shuddering, unable to spot him, unable to understand the words, just knowing that the words were ancient, foreboding, and they would feel very, very uneasy. And it was hard to do it without snickering. Just jumping ahead a little. There was a song of his people that told, If you follow the river inland through the village, you come to the other lake. And lately, it seemed nearly everyone was coming to the other lake. Years ago, National Geographic had praised it for its clarity and beauty, and more recently, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous had called it a local gem. To Roger Drinkwater's people, it was just Minigisa Sagami, literally, Berry Moon Lake. But what they they had meant was, Lake of the Moon when berries are picked. Not because there were ever spectacular amounts of any kind of edible berries right around the lake, but just because that's how you say August in Ojibwe. Due to the shade of its densely wooded banks and the deep center of the lake, it never got very warm at all, and August was the only month the unaccustomed could manage getting in the water without a lot of silly shrieking. Maybe a more accurate translation would be, that lake you can really only stand during the moon in which berries are picked, where they are picked, meaning August, basically. But that wouldn't work on a map. And then, a little bit later, uh, we... Roger finds that this is going to be the summer that really has to put his foot down about the jet skis. He's not getting any help from the, the new sheriff. He owned a depth map of the lake issued by the DNR in 1978, showing each indentation and point in the shoreline and in concentric organic swirls, the varying bottom of many geese's. It had been created mostly for fishermen, but Minigesis was so cold and so deep you hardly ever saw fish except at the far edges of the summer, early in May, late in September. Roger used the map for diving and exploring and kept it pinned to a corkboard wall squeezed in between the door and the fireplace. Over the years, he had less need to refer to it, and had become more, it had become more decoration than reference material. But now it seemed like a good way to keep track of things. He moved some of the firewood aside so he could stand closer to the map and really see what was what. He got a work light from the shed and clamped it on the mantle so that it shone back at the wall, illuminating what he was now considering his war map. With the colored sharpies he used for swim meets, he drew in the cottages. He drew in the docks and rafts, occasionally stepping out through his front door to squint out at the lake to check one or two against his memory. With a fine-point pen, he further identified the homes. Some he knew by name, the Petersons, Old Willoughby Place. And some, by inclination, big fat guy who screams at his kids, bad music, water skiers, New Yorker readers. And some he just assigned nicknames, his and hers, the Freckled family, the Fuss Budgets. Then he fished out a box of colored pushpins he kept in a kitchen drawer and began placing them around the map. These would be the jet skis, the Targets. He stood back and surveyed his battle plan. A lot of work lay ahead.
3: And for the Michigan storytelling segment, that was Steve Amick reading from his book, *The Lake, The River, and the Other Lake*. So, Steve, I'm curious, what inspired you to write this book?
0: Um, I I think it was that that experience of of finding Michigan popping up in my short stories more often, and that people were were reacting to it. I I was having more sales, as I said, but. It, it was that process of accepting that I'm a, I'm a Michigan boy. <laughs> um, and there, there were very few elements to this book that actually came from real life. There was one that occurred to, uh, with a friend of mine from, uh, in Connecticut. He's a lawyer, and his trees were cut down by the neighbor who wanted a better view of the water, the Connecticut River. That's about the only thing that was transplanted, planted live. But it really comes out of my, my deep love and my memory of uh, summers up north and stuff.
3: So we often talk about the Michigan Film Tax Incentive on Exposure um, and how, you know, that's, you know, while that's kind of in transition right now, but the whole goal of it was to try to keep people in Michigan and bring yeah. talent in Michigan. Um, so I grew, I, I noticed that you grew up and, and still live in Ann Arbor. Yeah. Um, is it easy for writers to have flexibility to stay in their home state or town and and, and still be successful?
0: Well, I think it's it's very hard, um, as I am right now, out of the, the academic loop, I haven't taught for 18 years really um, I'll be going to traveling once a week to Chicago to teach Northwestern in the fall for the grad program but um, yeah I think outside of academia it's it's really difficult it's becoming more and more difficult I, I was a victim of bad timing with the tax thing um, I had a very interested um, producer writer uh, pay me some nice money for an option um, for a couple of years but it all went away right before the tax thing was possibility. I think that that being in place would have really pushed the project forward because it really became clear you have to film this thing in Michigan.
3: So um, since you're a Michigan author and, and based in Arbor, I thought I would also ask you about your thoughts on the borders liquidation.
0: Uh, I have an interesting perspective because I, I, as a kid, that was the local borders was, um, w- was where we went before there was the Internet. Um, the original borders before it was a chain had an incredible quiz a test a really bad te- a hard difficult test that you had to pass to to get a job there and then you had a specialty a specialty area so if we had a paper as a kid, my mom would take us down there and we'd talk to the booksellers and in their in their given department, they might be an out of work philosophy professor or something. It was really an amazing place. To go find out about what books were out there and and the sad thing for Ann Arbor is that we now uh, we lost this this great place and it for the nation too, but you know there was a lot of worry twenty years ago when it became a chain because it would reduce the amount of um of smaller press books that are available, and that came true and uh it's just i I think the notion that it's going to Allow these little mushrooms of fun little bookstores to pop up is a nice idea, but it's a fantasy.
3: And what, I mean, what do you think is going to be the future of bookstores?
0: I think, I think bookstores are more and more going to um, look like bookstores at the airport. How so? They're going to be surefire bestsellers, a lot of nonfiction about how to make more money, and bad children's books written by celebrities.
3: And what do you think that this <laughs> what do you think this means for local art or local authors
0: Oh doom No I, I lo- locally it it doesn't this is a thing that's going to happen all all around the place I think I, I think you know uh struggling writers are more and more sort of working in this insular world that's so close to self publishing uh, it's a little bit worrisome but um in a very insulated way where I think there are more and more small presses that are read by other writers and that's it Basically, fiction writers have become poets.
3: <laughs> well, for the Michigan Storytelling segment, in the studio is Steve Amick. He is um, a Michigan author based in Arbor, and he read from his book The Lake, The River, and the Other Lake. To check out more of his stuff, you can go to steve-amick.com, and his last name is spelled A-M-I-C-K. Steve Amick, thanks so much for joining us for the Michigan Storytelling.
0: Thank segment. you.